the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. It's always fun to preach about hypocrisy, mostly because we all, at one point or another, are guilty of it. Even if we are free somehow from hypocrisy ourselves, we're surrounded by it on a daily basis. Politics, advertising, parts of the church. Did I mention politics? No one likes to be called a hypocrite, especially when we think that we're doing something for the right reasons. I grew up, as many of you know, in Mississippi, and I cannot remember a time in my childhood where the Episcopal Church did not play a major role in my life. I was an acolyte, lector, member of the choir. I knew every inch of that small parish church I attended since birth. I remember watching the priest's every move as he would conduct the liturgy, and I soon began to anticipate every word, every motion, every ringing of the bell. Not really knowing anything else, it was, in every sense of the word to me, a traditional church, and I grew to love it. And then when I was in around the second grade, our family took what would become a very memorable trip to Florida. Now, we'd certainly taken family trips before, and they often included a Sunday morning Eucharist at whatever local Episcopal church we could find. But this trip was a little different. Because you see, after entering this seemingly traditional-looking church building, the first thing I noticed is that the altar was in the middle of the room, and there were chairs, not pews, all around it. There was a band set up on one of the walls with a multiple guitars and a full drum set, no organ in sight. And after a quick glance to ensure this was, in fact, an Episcopal church that we were in, the service began. But there were no classic hymns, no vestments, no bells. They passed the microphone around so that people can make their own intercessions during the prayers of the people. And would you believe this? They even used the other version of the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> so needless to say, my family left church that morning in a little bit of a daze, and we agreed that the next time we were in town, we'd probably just spend another day at the beach then go to church there again. I mean, how could what those people were doing be called the Episcopal Church? I knew my church. I knew exactly what we did every step of the way each Sunday at my parish in Mississippi. It really did shock me. And looking back, I carry a little bit of resentment for those people in Florida for messing up that liturgy that I loved so much. Now fast forward with me about 22 years, and I entered seminary in New York City. Seminary, where people from all around the country come together with all of our preconceived notions of what church is and how it should look and how it should feel. And you know what? They were all completely different. 
And we were living in the heart of Manhattan, where there are over 200 Episcopal churches within commuting distance, and each one completely different than the next. From the church of St. Ignatius of Antioch on the Upper West Side, one of the highest of the high Anglo-Catholic churches, where they used copious amounts of incense and sung ancient Latin settings of the Mass, to Bushwick Abbey, which was a church community that met every Sunday in a bar in Brooklyn, where your shoes stuck a little bit to the floor, <laughs> and there's always that faint smell of musty beer. None of the churches I went to in New York were exactly like my home parish in Mississippi. Some were closer than others, but it took me a while to be able to get beyond my own biases and see through the differences in styles and music and recognize the church for what it really is. The people of God gathered together as the body of Christ. When the Pharisees in this morning's gospel saw Jesus' disciples eating their food without first washing their hands, their reaction might have been similar to my own upon walking into that church in Florida. Or, say, any Episcopalian in the 1960s walking into a parish and seeing a female priest presiding over the Eucharist. In their eyes, it was simply not done that way. It was against the rules of society, rules that had existed for a very long time. And, as you know, especially in the church, if we've been doing the same thing over and over and over again for a very long time, it must be the right thing to do. Not really. So when Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites, he's telling them that regardless of what rules and regulations they, as those religious authorities had established and passed down through the years, they had simply begun to miss the real point of obeying and worshiping God. They had become so bogged down in customs and traditions that they had forgotten how to live godly lives. We hear this also in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus is tested by that lawyer who asked, Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? If you remember, even though they've started with ten commandments, these laws have been interpreted and applied to their modern lives over and over again, each time adding new regulations. As an aside, the modern Orthodox Jewish person has 613 laws to follow. So how does Jesus answer this question? Which commandment in the law is the greatest? Well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Everything Jesus tells them. Everything they've been talking about since the very beginning, the commandments, the laws, what is kosher, what is not kosher, they all boil down to two things, loving God and loving your neighbor. So my question to all of us this morning is this, 
Where in our own lives have we allowed ourselves to become so wrapped up and bogged down with our societal norms and customs? Where have we let ourselves slip into worrying more about what our neighbors think of us and less about what we think of our neighbors? Today, in some corners of our self-professed Christian country we live in, our faith has been distorted and stretched so thin that it's become little more than a thinly veiled facade to promote agendas that are frankly so far from what we read in the Gospels that it boggles the mind. With the amount of pressure and influence we face acting counter to God's message, I believe that if Jesus were to pop down right now for a chat, he might be calling some of our dearest friends hypocrites. I certainly know he would call me one. But when you think about it, I suppose there are worse things than being called a hypocrite by Jesus Christ. After all, his command to love our neighbor, every neighbor, as yourself, is really a hard thing to do. It's very easy to love those lovable neighbors, but what about the not-so-lovable? Neighbors who don't look or sound like us, neighbors who don't dress like us, or even our neighbors who might do terrible things. Yes, we are called to love them all. Sometimes it's simply easier to just agree with the way things are and the way things have always been done than to cause a ruckus or to rock the boat. But that's really not why we are here, is it? I certainly hope that this discussion won't end when you leave church this morning, but will continue in the weeks to come. Jesus has given us the example of how to live our lives. And as we heard earlier, we're called to be doers and not simply hearers of the word, God's word, not our own. And personally, I would not really mind so much being called a hypocrite if I knew in my heart that I was trying my best to live my life as Jesus calls us to. And in the end, I suppose it really doesn't matter which version of the Lord's Prayer we use. What really matters is that we're praying at all.